Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to the rest of you. We are back for another episode of Bitcoin Magazine Live. As I, your host Q, and I'm coming to you yet again from my mother's basement, and I'm joined by my co-host P. How's it going, P? It is going fantastically. How's my mic? Am I too hot? Am I too cold? I think you should, you should share with everyone what the name of this mic is. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was informed that by uh, Aaron that this mic, which is the Electro Voice RE20, is known as the Elephant Dick in Germany. Um, this is, there's two mics that everybody uses. There's the, uh, there's the SM7B, and then there's this one, which looks hideous, but sounds great. And uh, that's where it is. So I'm speaking into the Elephant Dick. We are also joined by a special guest today, a colleague of ours at BTC Inc., but also a guru in the housing markets, none other than George McHale. George, how are you doing today, man? I am feeling good. It's good to see you guys. Thanks for having me on. Dude, thank you for joining us. We wanted to, uh, I guess, start things off maybe talking about the conference. We have a, a special announcement that we are actually sold out of fiat general admission tickets. And George, I'll kind of let you talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, basically at the end of uh, Bitcoin 2022, we started our pre-sale for Bitcoin 2023. GA tickets were $249. Those are now sold out, as you mentioned, uh, if you're paying with fiat. But if you do poke around the site, you can, uh, if you're a Bitcoiner, pay with Bitcoin. Actually, anyone can, even if you're not a Bitcoiner. It doesn't matter of fact, just use Bitcoin and you'll still get that price. Um, prices are going up on Friday. So uh, definitely grab your early bird tickets before those ticket prices go up Friday at midnight. Also, whale passes are still available at that $5,000 mark, um, but those are also near sold out as well. So don't miss out on the, the lowest prices. These are current prices are 77% off what they were at the door at Bitcoin 2022. So by far the lowest deal you're going to get. Just as a reminder for everyone, ticket prices are going to be going up on Friday. Uh, George, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Can you maybe share how much more people are going to have to shell out if they wait just 48 hours? Yeah, so the GA tickets are going up to three forty nine, so up by hundred bucks, and whale passes are going up by five hundred dollars. So that's you've been warned, Friday. Yep, you've been warned. Come join us at Adult Disney or Bitcoin Disneyland. Um, in uh, we can't, I guess we can't say, but all the announcements will also be coming out next month as far as when it will be, technically where it will be and when it will be. Um, but look, most of you had to travel to Miami. Most of you had to book an Airbnb and book a flight. You're probably going to have to do it wherever we put it next year anyway. So you might as well get your tickets as cheap as they can be now. So, P, any any final thoughts on the conference? No, I mean, I, <laughs> no. And yet, I'm still talking. Uh, yeah, I mean, every year that we do the conference, it builds and builds. It continues to be the most relevant, the most significant, the most Bitcoin conference in the world and um we set records and made history this year and next year is going to be even more incredible the scale is larger the scope the quality of the conversations will be even better um it's gonna be fantastic the number of tickets that we've pre-sold is pretty wild like the people just rushing into to make sure that they get their tickets before ticket prices go up and doing so before a venue or a date has been announced it's, it's been pretty remarkable to watch so Still have a chance to lock in that GA ticket two forty nine with the uh, with Bitcoin. Yeah, and people love to, you know, to complain about the price of the tickets. They do get high. That's how we finance this incredible event. This event was when I talk about the scale. You should also hear like 
cost. It cost us an incredible amount to to just to do justice to what this event is and will be and was. And uh, we we try to give people who have a low time preference the uh, advantage by offering these tickets early on. So don't be a high time preference bitch. Buy your tickets now and uh, don't be one of the people that's like, oh, but they're so expensive later. Cause yeah, just... oh, and one more thing on this too is a lot of people have been asking about like promo codes and discounts and things like that. Yo, that's $249. There's no discounts. This is the lowest it's going to be. So if you're holding out and you're like, oh, maybe there's going to be a promo code that they announce or whatever. Yeah, we will. But that's going to be like when prices are four or $500. So this is going to be the cheapest that you're going to get the uh, Bitcoin 2023 tickets. My, uh, my promo code, George. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I last year, my promo codes were uh, HFSP for have fun staying poor and also 69420. Um, this year, George, I'd like to pre-reserve the promo code. Um, I am a high time preference bitch. If that's, that's cool. let me write that down. Yeah, that'd be great. Be great yeah, but YouTube team definitely needs to get a, a much better promo code because our janky one last year still, uh, I think we finished number one or number two. Is that right? Oh, Mr. George? Cause we're up there for sure. No, we'll, we'll um, we got you. <laughs> I also want to ask you, because you had the opportunity to actually speak at last year's conference, and that kind of is going to help us segue into what we're going to talk about today. Um, do you want to maybe just share some thoughts both on the conference from about a month and a half ago and just generally as well as your experience on stage? Yeah, definitely. So I had the privilege of moderating a panel about pristine collateral on Bitcoin mortgages, and I was joined by Sam Abasi from Hoseki, um, the CEOs of... Milo and Ledin, uh, Adam Reeds and Yo uh, Joseph uh, Rupena, as well as um, I'm spacing on his name. Help me out, P. Uh, third, uh, the fourth guy. Ah, uh, the worst. He was in commercial lending, which isn't my world. So I got to know him the least, unfortunately, but um, he was great as well. So the, the whole conversation was solid. We were talking about the emergence of this, this new product, Bitcoin Mortgages. And um, really had a great conversation. I encourage people to check it out. It's on YouTube. The, the thing that was interesting to me was how many people mentioned Bitcoin mortgages from the main stage. So we were on the enterprise stage with this panel, um, but it, it just keeps coming up, right? People keep asking this question of as Bitcoiners become more wealthy, you know, the number one thing that they're going to want to purchase is real estate. So, and they, they're going to want to do it without having to spend their, their Bitcoin. So who is providing that, that product? And so the, the guys on stage got to talk, share a little bit about the, the products that they're working on and how they're relevant to uh, that emerging space. But uh, I think, you know, by the time we hit next year, this is going to be a, an even bigger conversation. And it's just going to continue to grow and, and take the forefront as more and more people are inquiring about how do you do this? How do you buy real estate using your Bitcoin and, and using it as collateral? Uh, without having to spend it and maybe potentially down the road, this product doesn't exist yet, but without having to actually uh, give up custody of your, of your coins as well. And look, like, it's so fascinating too, as the, as the years have gone on, you're starting to see more and more different ways for people to use their Bitcoin back in the fiat world and fiat system. I'm genuinely curious because, you know, some people are a little skeptical on using their Bitcoin to then go back into a more fiat structured system. What or why are you not concerned about that? 
I mean, I think it really comes down to a different type of borrower profile. So if you're in the fiat world and you're going to apply for a mortgage, it's a very specific set of uh, criteria that you have to meet in order to uh, to qualify for, for a mortgage. And a lot of Bitcoiners and, and a lot of you know, people in general who have a significant amount of wealth uh, don't fall into those parameters. And, and so they're looking for a, a different way to basically leverage their wealth to, to acquire real estate. And so I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question, but I, I think it's just important to recognize that there's, there are these two different types of borrower profiles. And with Bitcoin, um, what I like to say is that Bitcoin is your credit worthiness, right? I would like to see a Bitcoin mortgage product that doesn't rely on your FICO score, doesn't rely on your W-2s and your tax returns. And, you know, if you've, if you've ever applied for a, a legacy mortgage, like it's ridiculous the amount of stuff that they ask you for just to get you qualified for that loan. Whereas with Bitcoin, if, if Bitcoin can exist in a world where it is your credit worthiness, I think that's sort of what I'm, I'm really looking forward to. Ed, Edward Rodriguez, that's his name. Sorry. There we go. Got, there we go. Sorry, Edward. Yes, Edward Rodriguez. And uh, yeah, we had a really good conversation. Again, I encourage you to, to check it check it out. Um, only because like, as much as I like to say I pay attention to the housing market, like I have no grasp or understanding as someone who literally lives in my mother's home of what like owning a home, act, what goes into owning a home. So can we start there a little bit of just maybe walking us through not necessarily requirements, but like the steps it takes and all of the hurdles that are already in place to just owning a home in the traditional sense? Definitely. So the first step is to get pre-qualified or pre-approved. And that requires you going to a mortgage lender and again, giving them everything and all the information. Like, I mean, you think KYC is bad. Getting a mortgage is like KYC on steroids, right? So you're, the first thing you're going to do is fill out a mortgage application, which is like a five-page document. It's, on, it's usually all online now, but all the all the standard stuff that you know you would you would uh, apply for any sort of credit um, is is the starting point. So they're going to run your your uh, FICO, and um, they're going to ask you how much money you have in your bank account. They're going to ask you what you know how much of a house you're you're looking to acquire, how much you're going to put down, um, and then they basically run you through their their system. So. Uh, if you're looking for a home that's under 500 and I think 520, $530,000 right now is the new Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac threshold, you will fall under those Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines. And what that means is the government is going to back these mortgages, right? So they're going to, they're going to buy it from your lender. And that's, that's really what props up the, the housing market. Um, and that's a whole other conversation that we don't need to get into, but, you know, suffice to say a lot of, a lot of homeowners fall into that category of what's called conventional or, um, you know, uh, uh, conforming uh, loan limits. Once you get over those loan limits, then you fall under uh, what's called non-conforming or sometimes called jumbo loans. And those don't follow Fannie and Freddie guidelines. They're a little bit harder to qualify for. They'll have, you know, higher requirements for FICO score, usually higher down payment requirements. And so they're a little bit harder to get into. So um, you, you complete your application and you submit it to your lender and now they're going to want supporting documents. So, okay, you said here in your application that you have $15,000 in your checking account. I'm going to need a, a bank statement to back that up that shows that $15,000 is in there. And you also told me that you work at, you know, BTC Inc. I'm going to need your most recent uh, pay stubs as well as your most recent W-2s. Oh, by the way, can I get your tax returns as well? You submit all these documents. Now, a good lender, and this has become more common practice in the last 10 years, ever since the, the housing crisis, is going to submit all that paperwork to an underwriter ahead of time. So an underwriter is going to look at 
you know, everything that you've submitted and, and check it against their guidelines and make sure that, you know, you have what it takes to qualify for this loan so that you're not out making an offer. And then 30 days down the line, you find out, uh Oh, I actually didn't qualify because, you know, my FICO wasn't high enough or, um, I didn't have enough money in the bank or whatever else. And so, um, once the underwriter looks at your file, they'll issue you what's called a pre-approval letter. You'll use that letter to go then shop for a house. Okay. So most um, real estate agents won't even talk to you or let you make an offer on a home unless you have a strong pre-approval letter in hand. And you use that pre-approval letter to submit with your offer. And depending on the strength, strength of your pre-approval letter, the legitimacy of your, of your bank and, um, you know, how, how much you qualify usually like over the asking price is going to make your offer stronger or weaker. And so it's a really important part of submitting an offer, especially in a highly competitive market where there's multiple bid situations, you know, real estate agents, a good real estate agent is going to filter out the, you know, the garbage offers that are just like, oh, this guy hasn't even been pre-underwritten or this guy just barely qualifies for the purchase price. And so um, once you do that, um, and hopefully, hopefully I'm answering your question. This is kind of long-winded, but, uh, you're, Bro, I'm taking notes right now. <laughs> uh, so once you go, once you go through that, if your offer is accepted, you then you're under contract, it's called mutual acceptance. So both the buyer and the seller have agreed to terms you're under contract. Typically it's about 30 days to get to the closing table. Now you're not done yet with getting your, your mortgage. All you have is a pre-approval letter. Now, if, if, again, if your underwriter and your lender have, have done their job, then, You've, uh, you've gone a long way, so you're, you're almost there, but there's still a lot of things that need to happen. So the first thing that needs to happen is uh, an appraisal needs to get ordered. So um, when a lender is, is checking your creditworthiness and whether or not you qualify to buy a house, they're looking at both you, the borrower, as well as the home as collateral. And so the appraisal is a big part of ensuring that um, they want to actually lend uh, money to, you know, to, to buy this house. So they send an appraiser out to the home and the appraiser is checking on a couple of things. They're making sure that the value of the home is in line with what you are offering to pay for it. And they're making sure there's no deficiencies. So if like they go there and a toilet's broken or the kitchen isn't complete, or there's some safety issue, they're going to call that out in the appraisal and that those issues are going to have to be addressed before you can close on that house. All right. Appraisal comes back. Good to go. There's a few other like, clean I, oh, I got a question for you on that though. And maybe not the right person to ask. Apologies. In the moment, came to me. We're watching the housing market be insanely hot, which I do want to get into with you. But like in a market like this, where people are moving so quickly and buying houses for so much over asking, mm -hmm. are you seeing that same process of due diligence on the tail end after an offer is accepted? Yeah, I mean the appraisal process is very standard, and um, it's it's the mo it's one of the most special specialized parts of of the whole process. Like you have to have a, a licensed appraiser come out, look at the home, make sure that it it reach it hits the valuation that you're offering. Um, what's happening in in the market right now, and it's starting to cool off a little bit, but what has been happening over the last like year or two years or so, is with these multiple bid situations, people are asking way higher than than maybe even what the appraiser is going to justify, and so that's usually um, uh, fixed by the borrower coming in with the difference, okay? So let's say you're buying a house and you offer a million dollars and the appraisal, appraisal only comes in at 800,000. Well, now you got a problem because the lender is only gonna borrow up to the value, uh, the $800,000 is gonna be the, the valuation. And so let's say your loan is 
80% of that. So now you can only borrow, I don't know like this math, but like 650 or 625 or something like that. Um, 640K. Against, 640K against this a million dollar house, right? And so um, so now you're gonna have to come in, come up with that extra 200K, that delta between the appraised value and the appra- uh, uh, your asking price or your, your contract price. So it's definitely an issue, um, low appraisals. Um, and, and we're going to see that more and more now as the, as the market softens, low appraisals are going to become a, a really big issue in my opinion. And so, um, does that answer the, your question? Okay. Yes. In, in great detail. And I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I, wanna... I, nerd, I nerd out on this stuff. <laughs> no, dude, this is, this is why I do it. I'm genuinely curious. And I hope everyone who's watching the stream right now only sees P's face. And doesn't see any of us talking. Oh man, that's so funny. Bask, <laughs> bask in this glory. I'm testing out new uh, settings. I definitely think uh, the Jack Sparrow look works, and I'm, I'm a big fan. Thank George, you. talk to us a little bit about like present market and what you're seeing pretty much since COVID or a general whoa, whoa. home buyer. I didn't even finish. I didn't even finish the process. Oh, you didn't even finish? We're still at the appraisal, bro. There's still more. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> I'm not done taking notes. All right. Appraisal comes in. You're good. You got the valuation. Now you got probably another 15 days to, to finish closing. So again, taking this, let's say you buy this million dollar house. It comes in at value. You're going to put 20% down um, a couple of, re- of the remaining steps. So in the background, your lender is working on underwriting your file still, still actually got to go through uh, several different checks. You're probably going to have to submit 18 more documents to them along the way. Uh, stuff's going to expire. They're going to have follow-up questions. You're going to have to write letters of explanation as to why this is on your credit report or why this large deposit is showing up in your bank account. It's crazy. They might call your employer. Actually, they will call your employer twice. They'll call your employer at the time of application. They'll call them right before yeah, you close. Um, and then as you approach closing, the, the key window uh, or the key trigger moment is when uh, final final closing documents go out to uh, to either escrow or, or your attorney, depending on what state you're in. And that means you're you're as good as done, right? When when a lender has issued uh, final closing documents, then you're ready to sign and and get things consummated. And you bring your your down payment check uh, as well as the closing costs, so 200 gram and then some. And you sign your documents, and uh, usually a day or two later you're good to go and the keys are turned over to you as well as uh, the the title gets recorded in your name and you are now the owner of that home. Boom. Okay. What was your next question? Sorry. Jesus. That was a long process. <laughs> I want to make sure my mic isn't acting too crazy. Chris, can you give me a, a thumbs up or cool? Cool. So we're going to keep going like this and I apologize uh, for any mic issues, but present market is kind of nuts right now. Um, you alluded to like sort of shady practices a little bit that's still going on despite like what we saw back in 2007 and 2008. As I mentioned, like we're seeing houses go for a lot higher than asking price. Um, I'm curious just sort of what you're noticing in the markets right now or that you're paying attention to there that's catching you by surprise. Yeah, so we have a really interesting dynamic right now that's, you know, as much as we like to compare it to 2008, and there are certainly some similarities, there are a lot of factors that are quite different. Um, so what's happening right now is we're seeing a, a, a convergence of a lot of different things happening. People moving to different states that are cheaper because they're now remote 
uh, working remotely. So I think that's going to continue. So you're going to see some, some markets that are going to stay hotter than others. Um, but we're also starting to see uh, price drops, you know, pretty much across the board. I'm watching, you know, uh, house values in, in my area of Arizona, which has been one of the hottest markets uh, in the country. And, you know, it, it's kind of weird. You, you, you'll see houses sell really, really fast. We also see some, uh, some home uh, prices drop uh, like across the board. So it's kind of hard to get a read as to where exactly things are headed right now, because the other main factor that you have is interest rates are going up. So for, for, the, for a while, rates were hovering in between two, 3%, right? And now rates are over 5%, which makes a huge difference when you, when you go to qualify for a mortgage, right? That interest rate is, is a significant factor in what you can afford, how much home you can afford to buy, because it, it dictates your, um, your buying power in terms of your, your debt to income ratio. So if your interest rate goes from 3% to 5%, suddenly you can't afford as much house. So people who have been on the sidelines or have been outbid and, and have been trying to buy a house for a while now suddenly are finding that their affordability has gotten even worse. And it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you, can, you can't really attribute it to inflation directly. It's more of a, a factor of, of interest rates going up. But um, so I think that's definitely something to, to pay attention to is, is how things are going to slow down. And um, but there's also a lot of people are talking about how millennials are coming uh, of age to purchase homes, and we're the the population of millennials is, is uh, you know similar to the like baby boom generation, if I if I understand correctly. And so you have you're going to have a ton of demand or a lot of people that are looking for housing, and it's not like renting is a much better option. So if you qualify to buy a home, um, you're going to want to try to take that route as opposed to you know paying the same amount for a rent a smaller rental than what your mortgage payment would be um, if you if you qualify. And how much of these like private equity firms like BlackRock coming in and buying up homes is affecting the housing market right now? I mean, I'm definitely not an expert in this, but uh, it seems like quite, quite a bit. Uh, home prices, there's no question that they've been overinflated and, uh, you know, in, in Seattle, which is another one of the hotter markets uh, where I worked for a little while and I was in, in the mortgage business directly, is um, you would see situations where a house was listed for $1 million and it would sell for $2 million. Like, it's fucking wild. Yeah. And I mean, all, all over the place, this is happening. You know, San Francisco, another hot market, um, LA. And, and, and so this is not normal, right? Um, and so cash buyers or institutions that have a lot of cash obviously have an advantage in that kind of environment. They don't need to worry about a low appraisal. They don't need to worry about qualifying. So um, I would, I suspect that BlackRock is, is definitely influencing the market. So we'll see how it plays out now as things kind of slow down and interest rates are, are back up. Man, it's, it's, uh, I grew up in Northern California and everyone that I know had just accepted like, oh yeah, we're just never going to be able to own a house. And like, I had a good job, like software engineer. Like it was like, if you, unless you were willing to basically, you know, uh, sell your kidney or, you know, uh, one of your children, you weren't getting a fucking house, especially <laughs> not in the SF Bay area. And, or or Southern California for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. So like my whole view of the housing market is just fundamentally warped. And it's so weird to have moved to a more reasonable and awesome, much more awesome part of the country now and to see house prices and just be like, holy fuck, that is on discount. And the reality is, no, no, that's just a slightly more reasonable price. Mm. Yep. Yeah, it's going to be interesting think, to watch. 
you know, you talked about uh, the government kind of incentives that uh, aim to help a first-time homeowner buy a house. Can you speak to the the assumption that sort of every American, I, I think everybody should be able to buy their own house, but I'm also fascinated in the U.S., and maybe this does exist in other countries, but my perception is that it is a kind of um, unique United States phenomena where basically you know, the sort of like, go west, my son, uh, is financed by the government. Is that something that we see in the rest of the world? Or are the institutions and that allow or that are supposed to allow for US citizens to, um, you know, own their own house and be able to have their own property, which is which are great things? Has that affected the market? Well, yeah, two questions. One, is that something we see in other countries? Um, two, how much does that affect the housing market? The uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and how, and do we see that in other countries? Three questions. So as far as other countries go, I'm not super familiar with how it works in other countries. I've, I've talked to friends in Egypt and I know there, it, it works very differently. Um, usually the the builder of a home is actually acts as your lender. And so the bank isn't even really a part of the um, the equation a lot of times, it, or, or the consumer isn't dealing directly with the bank. But um, yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with how it works in other parts of the world. Here, um, okay, so there's a couple of different things. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they buy the paper from the lender. And they, so they, they in a sense, indirectly enable uh, a home buyer to purchase a home because they're the ones who set the parameters for, you know, who gets approved. Um, there's also other programs that the government um, sort of uses to, to subsidize housing. One of them is called FHA. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but um, it's become a lot less popular in, in, these, in this market because sadly, um, this is maybe a, a theory, I don't take this as a gospel, but a, um, if you're in a competitive buying, uh, bidding situation where you have you know, 10 homes or 10, 10 offers on a home, and one of those offers is an FHA uh, offer, Typically, you're, you're not going to get selected. You know, the, the, the guy with the cash offer that's, you know, $500,000 above asking is probably going to get selected over your FHA offer, which is 3% down, you know, low credit accepted uh, government program. Uh, FHA actually used to be one of my favorite uh, loans to do um, when, I, when I was an originator because they helped so many people get into homes that otherwise wouldn't be able to get into homes. So, um, you know, 3.5% down. They don't really have a minimum FICO score, although, you know, credit is, is definitely a consideration. Um, you do have to pay mortgage insurance. So it's a little bit more expensive of, of a loan, but the point is it gets you, it gets your foot in the door. Right. Um, and so these have become uh, utilized a lot less. So as, as things sort of begin to soften, I, I kind of expecting FHA to make a little bit of a comeback. If my theory is right, that they've just kind of taken a backseat because uh, of the multiple bidding situation, uh, multiple offer situations that people just feel like I'm not going to be competitive if I, if I put forward a, an FHA loan. So, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the long and short of the government's participation in it. Obviously we could talk about, you know, 10 years ago and the, and the bailouts of, of the major banks all pretty much had to do with uh, mortgage backed securities, um, you know, faltering. And, and that was because lenders were, were writing these loans that were extremely risky where, they would, uh, the, the rate would adjust after a couple of years and it would begin to, to amortize negatively. So say so you started with a loan of $500,000. Once it starts uh, negatively amortizing, that means you're basically adding debt to your mortgage. So your, your loan amount is growing. 
And so people became upside down. They'd walk away from their house and the, and the banks were left holding the, the, the bag, you know, rightfully so because they're being so irresponsible. And so things have gotten a little bit better in, in, in that, uh, on that front and that it's more, more difficult now to get a, a loan than it was 10 years ago. And so, um, but the government's influence is, you know, undeniable in, in the mortgage market. How much do you think, like, the government overstepping in the housing market has more to do with the byproducts of 2008 versus them trying to get ahead of, or them thinking at least they're getting ahead of some larger issue? I mean, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I tend to not trust the government in general, so I don't know what their motivations are beyond, like, you know, trying to cover their own asses. But what? Um, That's crazy. I know. I know. But, you know, I think, I I don't think it really makes much of a difference what their motivations are. I, I think the they're they're kind of stuck, right? They're, they're stuck between a rock and a hard place right now trying to trying to solve inflation. And so um, whether or not the, the housing market is going to be the central, you know, point or the first bubble to burst in, in this current, you know, recession cycle uh, is remains to be seen. It probably won't be. I think I think there's probably going to be enough demand of people who've been sitting on the sidelines, haven't been able to, to get into a home for the last two years because they've been, you know, outbid by BlackRock or cash buyers or whoever else. So I think the housing market's going to soften. I don't think it's going to crash completely like the, the way that it did in, in 2008 and 2009. Um, and so I think it's going to look a little bit different this time around. And, you know, to I guess to give the government some credit, uh, a part of that, part of the reason for that is because it has become more difficult to obtain a loan and because they have made it uh, you know, illegal to do these negatively amortizing loans or these option arms and things like that, that were so toxic and such a, such a part, uh, a big part of the housing collapse 10 years ago. I keep saying 10 years, man. It's, it's like 14 now, right? Dude, right? Well, like crazy. <laughs> Oy. Um, all right. We will dive in for the rest of our time on Bitcoin. I do want to give you one last opportunity. Feel free to just like take a jab at anyone politically speaking or in that <laughs> side of things before we dive headfirst onto the Bitcoin of it. I mean, they're all criminals, man. So where do you start? Jerome Powell, Janet Yellen, like double middles. We see you. We don't like you. And uh, Bitcoin is coming to, to take your eat your lunch. <laughs> Yes. George, what do you, how do you feel about my background right now? <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> not expect that actually. Um, yeah, that's creepy. <laughs> Very distracting. This is a real photo. It's unaltered. Oh, really? hundred okay. <laughs> percent. Just straight fact, real. Fact, fact, that's fact, actually fact. Janet Yellen's foot. Oh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> oh God. All right, so Bitcoin and mortgages. Yes. Um, like this feels like a fantasy or pipe dream for a lot of people who maybe have used Bitcoin as a way to save money because they never had a savings. And now maybe looking at this opportunity to, whoa, my savings has turned into potentially being enough to afford a home. Uh, you're seeing it happen in other countries like El Salvador where buying homes with Bitcoin is, is the norm. Um, Talk to us a little bit about just the rumblings you're hearing and things uh, and efforts that people seem to be focused on within this space of collaborating home buying mortgages and Bitcoin. 
Yeah. So let's start with kind of where we're at today. And I mean, there's there are products that exist today that help you if you're a Bitcoiner, Bitcoin holder to uh, to acquire real estate. But it really does require you to have a lot of wealth in Bitcoin. So typically using a, a, a traditional Bitcoin lending product, such as an Unchained Capital or you know maybe a BlockFi, if that's your if that's what you prefer. And um, and just putting up that collateral to free up liquidity. And then usually you're going to use that liquidity to make a down payment on a home. Or if you have enough Bitcoin, you're just getting enough liquidity to buy a home outright. Now, why would you do that? Why would you pay eight to 11% to borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, take the volatility risk of, of you know, getting liquidated and, and buy a home? Well, two answers to that. One, you have a lot of Bitcoin and it's fine. Like, you know, you're not super worried about your, your loan to value ratio. Um, two, you don't really have any other options, right? Maybe all of your wealth is in Bitcoin. And so you can't, you can't produce a W-2. You can't produce a, a bank statement that shows that you have income, which is what a traditional mortgage lender is going to require. So for, for a lot of people, this might be their only path. And, and forget about Bitcoin for a second. This might be the case, even if you're just somebody who has a lot of you know, traditional assets and you don't have a consistent income. So qualifying self-employed borrowers, for instance, is, is one of the hardest things to do in lending because there's, there's such a paper trail that's required to document in order to show that they have the income that they say that they have. Businesses are just a lot more complicated than a straight up, you know, here's my W-2, here's how much I made, and uh, here's my pay stub. So um, so some, some wealthy Bitcoiners will fall into this category. And as the price continues to appreciate, people are essentially coming into to new wealth. And again, what they're going to, one of the first purchases they're going to want to make is, uh, is real estate. So um, where this is going is there's there's now products that are starting to emerge. I mentioned emerge. I mentioned a couple already, uh, Ledin and, and Milo, who are offering Bitcoin-backed uh, uh, mortgages, and they're kind of I see them as as sort of transition products to uh, what I where I hope we're headed with a Bitcoin-backed uh, mortgage in the future. And what uh, basically what it, what they allow you to do is use your Bitcoin asset in the uh, qualifying process. So one of the things that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac require is when you're providing an asset statement, it has to be seasoned funds, which means that it has to be your money. So what you can't do is provide them a bank statement that has a $60,000 deposit on there, right? That came two weeks ago um, without paper trailing where that money came from, right? And so recently they changed, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac changed their guidelines to say, well, if you're a crypto holder, we will recognize, we'll allow you to paper trail that $60,000 if you can show us that you actually sold your crypto and that's where that money's coming from. So, and this is, um, this is a, a step in the right direction, but it's, it's far from what we want to be able to do, which is not sell at all, right? We want to be able to show this is actually my Bitcoin that I have at, you know, in my treasure, uh, and it's worth X dollars. And this is actually where a company like uh, Hoseki comes in to, to establish proof of reserves. And they're doing great work to basically uh, produce a, a statement that an underwriter is going to look at. And it's going to look just like a Wells Fargo statement or a Bank of America statement. So um, so really, really fascinating uh, evolution in, in the entire space to see something like this come up. Because again, if you if you showed this uh, your, your lender... Um, your a screenshot of your treasure and say, look, I got $100,000 worth of Bitcoin. They're gonna be like, what the hell is that? What are you showing me, right? There's really specific parameters that are required for you to actually have an asset be used for qualifying. 
And uh, not the least of which is it has to come from an institution that says, yes, you have this money. And so Hoseki's coming in and solving this problem by establishing proof, proof of reserves. And so any lender, not just the Ledins and the Milos of the world can now um, use that statement. And, and it can be, again, just as if it were money that you were holding in your checking account at, at Bank of America. So, um, so Bitcoin becoming your, your credit worthiness is, is where I, I hope the space is, is starting to, to head because you know, I think we, we have to reimagine what Bitcoin offers as collateral to a lender. And uh, I had a tweet yesterday where I was asking this question of like, how, how come it, when, I, when I'm in a mortgage, if I'm making my mortgage payments on time and my home drops uh, in value, my lender's not knocking on my door doing a margin call asking me to, to come up with a difference. But when I borrow money against my Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin falls, I get margin called, even if I'm making my monthly payments on that, on that debt. And uh, there's a lot of salty responses, a lot of suits, not happy with that one. But it's it really just comes down to the fact that the market doesn't understand Bitcoin yet. And uh, in my opinion, it's going to take some time, obviously, for the market to, to really understand what we're dealing with here and the, the scarcity being the number one number one aspect to it. Um, but but really, um, I don't understand why we we can't have a product where uh, you don't have to move your coins. All you have to do is establish that you have them, you know, with again, a company like Hoseki doing leading the way with this. And that should be good enough for a lender. Just like if I give you a W-2 or if I give you a, a pay stub, it's not really, if you're a lender, it, it doesn't really promise anything in the future, right? I could get laid off tomorrow, right? I could get laid off the day after I close on my home. Now what? Everything that you, all the due diligence, all the underwriting that you just made me go through is meaningless because I can't afford my mortgage the next month because I don't have a job anymore. And so, um, so I actually think if we're just using the logic, you know, one to one, Bitcoin is a much better, much safer risk for a lender when when you look at it uh, that way. But again, it's going to require some some reimagining. You had a very interesting uh, tweet yesterday that I'm trying to pull up right now. Um, I don't know if you recall it or. I think it was the one I just mentioned, maybe the mortgage one. The with mortgages in the value, if the yeah. value of your home drops below the amount of your debt underwater, there's no margin call. Keep making your monthly payments, so you get to keep your home. Bitcoin is much better collateral than a house, yet margin calls trigger well below 100% LTV. Why? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, can you maybe share sort of what you're talking about through the lens of both, and then why we can't, and then maybe we can, the four of us, have a discussion over like why maybe this is being blocked yeah i mean just to kind of speak to it some more i think what the, the point i'm trying to get at ultimately is if a lender is going to issue me a mortgage for half a million dollars to buy a six hundred thousand dollar home and the agreement that we're making at, at the time of origination is look lender i'm going to pay you twenty five hundred dollars a month and in 30 years you're going to be paid off come see me in 30 years right or come see me if i don't make my payment that's it there's really no agreement that says, you know, well, if, you're, if the price of your home goes down, you know, you're going to owe me more money or I'm going to come take your home. Um, mortgages are really secure and safe in that way. And that's, that's why people like them. <laughs> uh, with Bitcoin, it's, you have the volatility risk, obviously, but, I'm, but the, the heart of my, my tweet really is, and this was missed again on a lot of people, especially the, the legacy finance folks. Um, why, why not? You know, why, why? If I'm putting up my Bitcoin as collateral and, I, and I'm, I'm making the same agreement with you as a lender and I'm saying, I'm going to make, I'm going to pay you X number of dollars per month. Why isn't that good enough? Right. Um, 
why do you also now need to reserve the right to liquidate me if the value go, goes down? And there's a, there's a lot of nuances here and there's, you know, it's a security and it's just like, you know, borrowing against your, your stocks or your bonds. And I get that. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. But why? <laughs> right. And this is, and this is where like Bitcoin is still not only misunderstood, but is, is an emerging asset class and, um, and requires reimagination. Like I keep saying, like we have all the analogies fall short, right? When we talk about Bitcoin as digital gold and all this stuff it's helpful to sort of start giving it color but it, it ultimately doesn't do it justice because we've never had, we've never seen anything like it. So to try to put it in the category of stocks or bonds doesn't do it justice. And actually to try to put it in the category of real estate doesn't quite do it justice either. And so that's really the heart of my treatise. The tweet is to try to get us to think differently about this. I mean, a lot of people liken Bitcoin to digital real estate. And I, I think there are a lot of similarities between the two and you can see that through line. I don't disagree that volatility is definitely the biggest factor here. But at the same time, like you have other types of loans you, you can take out at a certain point. Like you could take out a loan of 50% of your portfolio value and live off of that as well. But you'd still succumb to some sort of a margin call should that portfolio value go below an agreed upon threshold. Um, I'm genuinely curious, P or Chris, if you guys kind of feel like it's volatility or if there's something else here that's triggering this. Sorry, can you restate the question? Triggering what exactly? Like the necessity that you have to get margin called when you take out a loan against your Bitcoin or stocks and equities versus if you have, um, if you get underwater on your mortgage payments, you can still catch up, but you like still own that home and they're not taking that home away from you. Not yet, at least. My understanding slash assumption is that that, and again, this is why I was asking that question earlier about like how are how is property treated in the rest of the world? Because again, in the United States, there's this um, this kind of like you know like a person owns their home, and there's a lot of institutions or rather um, systems that are designed to support that kind of like you know. Um, that that that's that belief and so i think that housing is just treated differently i think that uh, there there isn't a good reason for it but it's it's based in this uh this set of uh, beliefs that are around sort of like housing being this sacrosanct thing i don't know george would you would you agree with that or is that is that is that not a fair statement are there other places in the world where it's kind of just like nope this is just how it works with property or with houses specifically yeah i mean i think there is the conversation about property rights specifically, but but when it comes to mortgages, when you have a when you have a, a lien on your property, um, you're, you this has been said quite a bit. Like, okay, you're not the owner of your home, right? Home ownership is kind of a mirage if you have a mortgage. Actually, the bank owns your house because uh, if you stop paying them, they're going to take it from you. But the I guess the the thing that I'm trying to push at is like, but if I'm as long as I'm paying them, we're good, right? Uh, the the value is the, the agreement that we're making. Again, once we originate the loan, the ship has sailed. We're, we got the appraisal. Everyone's good. 30 years, come talk to me. And and so I think that's, um, you know, that's that's definitely a, a different paradigm than, than any sort of other type of, of debt. And, and mortgages and housing in general are like a class unto themselves. They play by a different set of rules and they have you know, a different set of regulatory uh, standards. But um, I think that I think that this is going to continue to to evolve, and I think the introduction of Bitcoin as pristine collateral, to use that language, is um, 
is going to make things really, really interesting because once more, once the legacy uh, finance people understand Bitcoin more, and once a secondary market uh, where like we're talking about deep pools of capital um, start start seeing this as safe money, start seeing uh, Bitcoin-backed mortgages as as a safe place to to put your money, then I think the market is is going to explode, and I think Bitcoiners are actually going to start getting uh, better terms, right? So better uh, ability to qualify, right? Because lenders are going to start seeing it as your credit worthiness. So hopefully we can put a rest to FICO. Hopefully we can put a rest to, you know, the, the mountains of paperwork. I would love to see a mortgage product where all I need to do is get an appraisal and get my Hoseki, uh, you know, proof of reserves uh, statement and call it a day. Like that's, that's all you need to know about me. Right. You don't need to really know anything else. And, um, and I actually, what I envision is, is some sort of cross collateralization where you're kind of, you're kind of posting both your, your real estate and your Bitcoin as the, the collateral and you're over collateralizing the loan, similar to how Bitcoin back loans right now are over collateralized. You're now over collateralizing it with two different types of assets. And so I think if we start thinking outside of the box, uh, we can get to a place where it makes sense for the lender. This is, a, this is an acceptable level of risk because I'm used to as a lender uh, lending money against a home based on these antiquated Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines, where again, if you lose your job the day after we close, I'm screwed to now, if you lose your job, guess what? I can just come for your Bitcoin. I can just slowly liquidate you one payment at a time. And, and until that, uh, that Bitcoin reserve is, is depleted. So I think there's a, there's a lot of different ways to be, to be thinking about this, but, uh, again, it's going to require legacy people to, to get on board with, uh, what, with what's actually going on here. For me, I'm, I always have these moments where I'm like, oh my God, we're so fucking early. Like, I have to remind myself because like for me, I'm like, yeah, obviously Bitcoin is the only thing that matters. Like I'll fucking, you know, like selling the chairs. Like I'm like, do I really need this car? Okay, well, I'm selling, you know what I mean? Like, and and I think I'm, I'm on the even more extreme end where I'm like, I don't want to own a house. I just want to own Bitcoin. But yeah, I'm super excited for those systems to be more developed. Um, one thing you said that was interesting, you mentioned sort of like, oh yeah, I'll come after your Bitcoin you know, sort of during that, how, how do you imagine that working? Like, do you, you know, obviously with smart contracts on Bitcoin, which again, people love to say like, oh, Bitcoin doesn't support smart contracts. I feel like that narrative is dying, but it has, to be clear, always been 100% bullshit. The first smart contracts were on Bitcoin and then Ethereum came around and tried to make that claim and it's ridiculous. But there are ways of implementing that at the, um, you know, at the smart contract level. Is that the kind of systems that you imagine where basically you, you know, are locking up Bitcoin in order to uh, guarantee that, you know, if, if you stop making payments that your, uh, your lender can, uh, can take possession of that. Yeah, that's definitely one product that I could, I could see emerging that I think would be a step in the right direction. I mean, ultimately it'd be great to be able to, to retain custody of your, of your Bitcoin and, and get a mortgage. Um, I think we're even further out from that, but, but I think we're on our way, but some sort of a, a you know, multi-sig arrangement where, you post X number of Bitcoin and, you know, the, the house is also sort of a part of your collateral. And then the, if you, if you default, what the lender can do is begin liquidating that, that Bitcoin. So that's the agreement that you're making. So that, whether that's a smart contract or, or whatever, um, I think that could be a really interesting way to, to automate it to where, you know, if you don't log into your account and make your payment by the fifth or whatever, then a portion of your Bitcoin gets liquidated and, and you're, you're current, everyone's happy. Right. Um, so I think that would be a really interesting uh, way to, to look at it. What I think we, we definitely need to evolve uh, into for, for a product like this to, to really be workable is 
these liquidation triggers can't really be a thing. Because if you're living in your home, the last thing you need is the stress of Bitcoin volatility to put your home in jeopardy, right? Um, so, and that's, again, the, the heart of that tweet from yesterday of like, really, is this really an, a necessity? And, and um, right now it is, right? That's, that's the, because that's what the, the market uh, will bear. But I think we're, we're quickly coming to a place where, again, lenders are just going to prefer this over any sort of other collateral. I'm curious though, George, like the lenders are one side of it, but also like the Bitcoin holders themselves, I think have to have some sort of buy-in that this system isn't going to essentially take their Bitcoin away from them. So maybe what are some reservations you've heard of, or maybe some like FUD that you'd like to essentially negate here on that side of the coin? Yeah. So I think, so Pete kind of mentioned this earlier of like, should I buy a house? Do I even want a house? Do I just keep buying more Bitcoin. I think I've, I've heard that sort of real estate FUD quite a bit in, in the Bitcoin community of like, you know, real estate's a shit coin or whatever. Um, and I, I think people are a little bit, um, I think people are still hesitant because of what happened in 2008. And I think I think when we're talking about your primary residence, you need somewhere to live. You need shelter, right? It's one of the basic human needs. And so um, you, you have the, the very first thing you got to do is evaluate, okay, what are my options for shelter? I could probably rent a place. What is that going to do for me? And, and what kind of a place can I rent? Um, or I can afford to purchase a home at you know, a similar level of, of what this rental would be. And you got to compare, like, what, where, what do I want my standard of living to be? And again, this goes into time preference and all that kind of, you know, Bitcoin or philosophical conversations that I think are really important. Um, so, but when we're talking about a primary residence, I think it's, it's, I think it's very reasonable to desire uh, something like this as where you would put your, your Bitcoin uh, first, right? Like I know that we, we want to hodl to and, and forever and ever, and just like keep stacking or whatever, but eventually there's going to be a time where you're going to want to actually use your Bitcoin. That's just my guess. At uh, some point in your life, you're going to be like, you know what? I've stacked enough sats and maybe I'm ready to spend a little bit of it. Or maybe I'm ready to leverage a little bit of it in order How to- How dare you, George? Money. I know, I know. Super controversial. I will never have stacked enough sats. <laughs> yeah, you can, guess what? You can even keep stacking after you buy a house. It's not It's not forbidden. Um, but I think, that, I think that when we think about the sort of the uh, hierarchy of needs, uh, housing is, is right there at the top of the list. And it's going to be the first thing that you're going to want to do when you, be, when you become- as wealthy as we all believe that we're going to continue to become as Bitcoin um, continues to, to mature. So uh, once you start getting into real estate speculation, that's when I start getting a little bit like, uh, I don't know, man, maybe don't use your Bitcoin to, to buy an investment property. I should probably don't like ever do that. That just sounds like a bad idea. Uh, I think you have to be satisfying an actual, you know, innate human need. And, and we're talking about shelter. So I think, I think that's a, that's a pretty important one. Yeah, I mean, for me, the calculus also, I mean, it, as it is and should be for everybody, I don't think anybody would contest this, but part of the reason that I prefer to rent is because I expect to have to be a digital nomad mm. in the near and medium term. You know, there, there are very few places that there's types of properties that I would view as a, as both an investment and somewhere I'd want to live. But in most of the places that I want to live right now, I, the housing markets are, are not in my favor, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, I think I was going to add to that as well. Like I see, and, and this is kind of a bad way to look at, it. I don't see my house now as an investment, but I see my house as uh, it's in a desirable area and it's a place that I can rent. 
And I know, uh, I think Ryan was in the comments saying he saw his rent go up 20% this year. Um, I just, I've been in my house for just over a year now, and obviously my tax is reassessed. And, you know, the lucky thing about the state taxes is they go off the government CPI. My taxes only went up 1.7%, which is what my mortgage changed. So in a weird way, even though I'm stuck in the, the fiat ways and I bought a house, which like George said, some people see it as a shit coin. I'm kind of like arbitraging the two trends of like, Inflation's running at 8.5 or 8.5. Obviously, they don't want to go up that quickly in state taxes, or they think it's going to come back down to the two levels. So I, I got a delta of like 18%, um, you know, inflation if you're looking at rent in the area, which it probably went up probably 15 to 25%, depending on your house in my area as well. So I don't know. It, it's like I think Pete Rizzo brings this up a lot as well. And then I'll, I'll kick it back over to George. But he says, like all of us Bitcoiners, unless you're on like the get on zero crowd or you're really living 100% in Bitcoin. You're all of us, even though we love Bitcoin, are still arbitraging the trend between fiat and, and Bitcoin. And by many means, you know, you can live the get on zero. You only take Bitcoin. You denominate all your fiat as soon as you get it into Bitcoin. So you can live that lifestyle. But for I'd say the vast majority still, even if Bitcoiners are 2% of the population or world, that the vast majority of that 2% is like living the arbitrage or trying to arbitrage the most of it, I guess. Yeah. Definitely. I would actually argue that everyone, whether they understand that they are arbitraging fiat versus Bitcoin or not, are definitely doing that. Like, <laughs> I mean, I suppose if you are taking your salary and then immediately converting 100% of it to Bitcoin and you're just always doing that, you don't care. But like, if you are interested in the price of Bitcoin right now and where it might or might not be going, everybody loves to say like one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, which I firmly believe. But at the same time, it's like, you know, looking at my block clock, like shit, if, you know, buying Bitcoin now is twice as, twice as good, twice as much in my favor, that's, uh, than it was when it was well, actually more than, more than twice, uh, when it was higher. And so I think everyone is legitimately considering that, or they should be, uh, whether or not they are understanding the implications of the, the arbitrage opportunity and the challenges between fiat and Bitcoin. I also think that, you know, the idea of like real estate being a shit coin, uh, I definitely don't think that. I think that real estate is probably the least bad shit coin, <laughs> followed by USD currently, and then probably um, um, canola oil. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we ultimately, I think, as Bitcoiners, what we want to be able to do is we want to self custody our Bitcoin and we want to be able to use it. And I think that's I think the first like real use case is going to be uh, with real estate. Um, and that's, that's what I'm pushing for. That's what I'm hoping for. That's what, uh, some of these, these companies I've already mentioned have, have already been building towards. And, uh, I'm encouraged by what's already emerging. I mean, things are happening so fast, but this conversation is starting to, to pick up a lot of momentum. And again, if, if there is a, a future where as Bitcoiners, you don't have to give up your Bitcoin, you don't have to sell it and you don't have to worry about volatility, right? But you just are you are leveraging one of its most important properties, which is is the, the, its pristine collateral nature. Um, then you know why not why not use it to to purchase a home? Um, and if it if it opens up the, this opportunity for people to uh, be able to qualify for a home who currently can't qualify for the home for a home, then I mean that that becomes really exciting, right? Because now it's also um, an, an onboarding a way to onboard people to Bitcoin. Uh, who, if, if a product that like I'm describing exists and somebody doesn't have any Bitcoin, but they don't qualify for a traditional uh, mortgage, 
now all of a sudden they're gonna be like, well, shit, I'll just go get some Bitcoin. And suddenly I, 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 I'm approved for, for a home loan. You know, it's a complete game changer. I think one of the big takeaways from like this entire conversation has really been, it really just depends on what your situation is. Like I definitely fall more in line with P as far as being a digital nomad and like the fact that I don't pay rent gives me that freedom to do that. But then also to Chris's point, like there are reasons as to why it does make sense to hold or store money in more places than just Bitcoin. I'm genuinely curious because what Chris essentially alluded to is his property while it is shelter today could very well turn into an investment vehicle tomorrow. George, you, you point blank kind of said like, don't do that. So I'm curious why. Um, and I might need to go cancel a couple of contracts if I'm convinced <laughs> enough by your answer. So no, no, to be clear, I'm saying don't, don't try to use your Bitcoin to buy an investment property. I'm not saying I'm not, you know, if you want to invest in real estate, that's fine. And, and I'm not making any judgments on that. I just think the use case that I'm specifically excited about when it comes to Bitcoin backed mortgages is to secure a primary residence. And, and I think that's, that's really what I, what I want to focus primarily on. I think there's another use case with real estate that I get excited about, which is uh, financing commercial um, properties that where, you, where you're going to have a mining operation, right? So it's kind of um, uh, it, this virtuous cycle of you use your Bitcoin to uh, acquire a commercial property that then gets you more Bitcoin. Um, but I think that's like a, a, maybe even a later phase. Uh, but yeah, I think, I think all I'm, all I'm talking about is cause you're absolutely right. People are in different phases of life. You know, I'm married, I have two kids and we have, um, limited options when it comes to housing, right? It's harder to find a, a apartment to rent or a house to rent that, that, uh, it, you know, we're going to be comfortable in that, that we're, that, you know, fits the lifestyle that we, that we want to have. And so purchasing a home for us makes more sense. And if I can do it in a way without, you know, with, while, while limiting how short I am Bitcoin, then that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm going to choose to do. I also love the idea that what this essentially unlocks is more use cases for Bitcoin to actually be used in transactions, used, as you mentioned, like as pristine collateral, which is what it was designed to be. Um, there are obviously so many steps and hurdles in that, in the way Talk to us maybe about, from a legislative standpoint, anything that maybe could stand in the way or inhibit that from happening. Yeah, definitely. So when it comes to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, right now, the biggest hurdle in in getting to where, you know, the product that I'm describing, which is forget about FICO, forget about W2, forget about pay stubs, um, is this regulation that that emerged after the uh, housing crisis in 2008. Um Dodd-Frank Act, and it's called ATR, the ability to repay. So basically, it's required by law that you provide to a lender uh, proof that you have the ability to repay on your mortgage. So I actually would be illegal for me to be uh, become a lender and say, hey, I'm going to give you a mortgage on your home. I'm gonna, I see your Bitcoin collateral here. Thank you for this. Uh, but I don't need to see anything else. That would be an illegal transaction uh, in, in the eyes of the government because uh, the the borrower hasn't demonstrated an ability to repay, so we need to get over that hurdle. If if what I'm describing is is going to to eventually come to fruition, um, now there are some creative ways around this that you know uh, I think some companies are are starting to 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 work on. 
you know, utilizing multi-sig becomes a really interesting part of the equation, but that's the biggest regulatory hurdle that I can see. The other one, of course, is, you know, what I described earlier of uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac not recognizing crypto assets as a, um, as an actual asset. They don't look at it the same as your checking account or your savings account. Um, again, uh, Hoseki is solving that problem in real time and uh, I encourage everyone to check that out because it's pretty remarkable what they've been able to come with and be able to, to generate a, a, essentially what looks like a bank statement based off of your treasure holdings or whatever, wherever else you're holding your Bitcoin. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's a, a huge part of, of kind of what's next, even before we get to changing regulations. How does that work though? Like, are those, those bank statements produced by Hoseki, are those accepted by banks? Yeah, I mean, it's a really, really new product, but there's definitely been some uh, some case studies that have already been, been used where they've been submitted to underwriters and underwriters have accepted them. I mean, listen, there's a, a million different financial institutions that have their own little logo at the top that say, yep, this is George McHale. This is the date. This is how much money he's got. All the requirements that, you know, this is the account number, right? And these are all, these are the things that an underwriter, when they're looking at a bank statement, that's all they're checking. They're looking at for 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 those parameters. And so, um, it, it's just it's something that you know Coinbase and and Trezor and any, any of these you know wherever you're holding your Bitcoin, you just can't produce something like that that's going to be compliant that an underwriter is going to look at and take seriously. Um, and so they've they've definitely solved this uh, this real like urgent market need to to produce something that isn't going to, to raise any red flags. It's just going to say, these are the, these are the assets, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's pretty remarkable. And I wish that like underwriters for this type of thing were the same as like underwriters for like physical objects, you know, like if you ever do research, if you ever like looked into like underwriters laboratories, you know, like any like electrical device, like has like a little like stamp on it. They do the craziest shit. It's like, they put it in this like giant furnace and they like increase the temperature while like running the electricity through. And they're like, will it catch on fire? Who knows? Let's find out. And it's like, does this thing actually meet these specified standards? Like just the physical laws of the universe. Whereas like financial underwriting, it's just so much hand-waving. It really is. Yeah. And actually what, what uh, proof of reserves is actually, I think one of the most powerful ways that, you know, an underwriter can, uh, can demonstrate somebody's assets actually exist and are theirs and that they have access to them. Um, you know, producing a bank account is also, also kind of works, but again, it's like, um, and if I can check in real time, how much you have on your treasure, um, that's a different, that's a different level of, of qualifying you than if you just send me a bank statement from 30 days ago. Man, it's also interesting. And this is a very much a side conversation. Well, maybe not, but just the privacy implications of that, you know, like we spend so much time as Bitcoiners, uh, not reusing addresses. And, you know, that's, that's the default in almost every wallet these days, any modern Bitcoin wallet, um, automatically generates a new, you know, hierarchically determined wallet address. And that is useful because otherwise on a blockchain, I'm saying for the audience, but obviously everyone on the call knows, but for, on a blockchain um, like Bitcoin, you can see the whole idea is that everything is fully auditable. You can see every single transaction that ever happened on the Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, Bitcoin pizza day is on Sunday. And when you spin up your own node for the first time, you download the entire history of the blockchain from inception and you can literally go back and see the fucking transaction where those that bitcoin that pizza was purchased and that's really fucking cool but it also makes um 
things like uh, maintaining one's uh, kind of pseudo pseudo anonymity is relatively straightforward to maintain, although it's very, very, actually, essentially, it's very difficult with all the KYC systems that have been implemented recently or more recently. But um, Mm -hmm. anyway, I I just think about that. Like if you're basically putting up your, your, all your, uh, you know, your XPUB, all of your, uh, your wallet addresses, how does that factor into, and how will people make that decision? You know, right now, I think most, the average person is very used to just, of course, everyone in the entire world has access to my bank account, or at least, you know, inter- at least, of course, the government does, or increase anybody who has access to my credit score. I wonder how that will shift in a, in a Bitcoin world as we move into hyper-Bitcoinization. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, th- and that's a big part of sort of what, what I'm, what I'm um, excited about is if we can get away from FICO scores, and if we can get away from some of these legacy components, that it does become a little bit more private. I mean, ultimately, you're still providing, you know, some some personal financial information, but maybe you don't have to provide your social security number uh, anymore to, to a lender. Um, and, and so, and maybe you don't have to get KYC fully. Um, you don't actually to, to get your proof of reserves uh, document done. And, uh, but you do have to, you do have to, to, to your point, there is some privacy that you're, you're giving up by providing your XPUBs and, and wallet addresses in order to, uh, to get this done. But uh, it is an improvement on sort of a full KYC process. Oh, I want to be very clear. It is a massive improvement. It's a huge, huge, huge improvement right now. Uh, your credits, I mean, yeah, when you get, when you apply for a loan, it's like, as you said earlier, the amount of information you have to give up is it's fucking insane. I had to restrain myself not to make a, a joke about like, yeah, you also have to give your DNA sample and your yeah. firstborn child and all this shit, but you have to give everything. And like that in any centralized system where that stuff is being collected or exposed, they will eventually be hacked. And uh, that information will just become someone else's information. So this would be a massive improvement. I was thinking about this too. So like, what if, so obviously yours in Bitcoin is collateral and you know, whether it's a two or three multi-sig, assuming you one key that you have one key that the bank has, and then one key, let's just say a lawyer has just to keep it simple or an arbitrator, whatever. Imagine you get to a point where like you feel the bank is doing something dishonest to you, or the bank feels like you're doing something dishonest, but then they lose the, the seed phrase or they misplace it with someone else's seed phrase. And it's like, oh, well, we want this. And uh, I don't know, you get into hairy situations where the lawyer like could collude with you or, you know, it gets like, or maybe the Bitcoin's lost. So you're like doing this loan against something you thought that you have and you both lost it or, or something happens where like you basically can't unlock these funds. So you've been basically living in a house and they're like, oh, yep, it's good. You've been paying the fiat or whatever, whatever loan terms you have. But then they're like, hey, we're trying to margin call you and they can't like actually use it to get to take advantage of it. So uh, I think that would be a very interesting spot to be in. There's a lot of really interesting stuff you can do though, even with Taproot, but certainly with, you know, with Covenants, which is a big separate thing in the Bitcoin world now, but you know, you can have like decay, you can do this right now with Taproot is my understanding. You can have like decaying multi-sig setups. So uh, again, for the audience, uh, a multi-sig setup is where you have multiple uh, private keys, which are required in order to, you know, spend your Bitcoin. So you can have a two of three multi-sig where you have three different, you know, hardware wallets or three different private keys. And then two of those three are required and you can do three of five, you can do seven of 10, whatever you want, but there are ways of setting it up so that, you know, if, if it's a two of three multi-sig and then, but after three years or a year or six months or a week, it decays to a, you know, one of three or whatever you want to, however you want to set it up. And there's also, you, you could do all sorts of interesting pay, payout schemes where it's like, you are signing a transaction that guarantees that every month 
like a certain amount of this Bitcoin will be available to be reclaimed if X, Y, and Z, like you can do all that shit on Bitcoin. Mm. So I think, I think we're going to see more and more uh, kind of novel um, smart contracts on Bitcoin with Taproot and Schnorr. And uh, That'd be think, dope. Yeah, we'll be able to find the balance between like just being able to be like, well, if my lawyer and this other person collude, like I lose all my Bitcoin, you'll be able to set it up in these like, you know, multiple signed transaction ways. I still think, oh, sorry, I'll go real quick, George, and then I'll swing it back over to you. But like, I can definitely see, well, that's cool. And there'll be a lot of people that do clever things. There's without a doubt going to be someone like, I fat fingered, I only wanted a year and I put 10 years or like, you know, there's without a doubt going to be things like that that occur. You know what I mean? Oh, no, hundred percent. But I mean, that's why like we're seeing all these really interesting businesses build out like Casa, Unchained, there's other ones as well, where their entire business model, which is extremely valuable is we help you set up a secure, safe, multi-sig Bitcoin situation where, um, you know, you are not, uh, you know, I like to say Bitcoin is about radical personal responsibility, right? Um, If you fuck it up when you're setting up your hardware wallet, like your Bitcoin's gone, which is why it's like, you know, like when I set up the first, you know, many, many years ago, when I set up my first hardware wallet, it was like, I spun it up. I made sure I understood my seed phrase. I wrote it down. I wiped the wallet. I restored it. I did all the, th- you know, like I sent a test transaction. I sent another one. I sent it back. I fucked it up. I learned, you know what I mean? Like that's a lot of work. And there is a lot of value in these services that are very trustworthy businesses where um, again, like Casa Unchained, they'll help you set up a two or three multi-sig where they are one of the key holders and they have all these additional systems in place that um, make that a system where you can just show up and be like, make my shit secure and they'll do it for you. And I think we're going to see the same things with these types of systems that we're, that we're talking about now. So um, I think in the near future, you won't, you won't have to kind of go it alone, so to speak, if you don't want to. Yeah. I think it'd be cool too. If, if on the sort of positive end of, of that is what, as the price appreciates both of a Bitcoin or maybe at your house, or you hit, you know, a certain number of payments into your, into your loan terms, you slowly get, you set up like a smart contract that like you're describing Pete, where you hit these triggers and then your Bitcoin collateral is automatically released back to your, you, you're in full custody. Yeah, I think yeah. that would be legit. So there, there, and I think that's ultimately kind of, if, if you're a long, if, if you're holding Bitcoin for the long term, that's the, the beauty of this product I'm describing is you know, if you can protect your downside enough to where there's no liquidation trigger and you're taking an acceptable amount of risk and, you know, you're able to service the debt. Okay. So now your, your Bitcoin is just being used, utilized as, as collateral, but you're not spending it. Um, and so even in a down market, you're okay. And you still get, you keep your house, you get to keep your Bitcoin as long as you're making payments. And then on the upside, you're basically in, in fiat terms, you know, your debt's like dwindling to nothing. Um, because the, the, the Bitcoin is appreciating so much. And so that collateral could be released back to you as your LTV um, is, is lower and lower. It's going to be really interesting to see the, um, how the incentives and the game theory plays out. You know, like right now, it's at the end of the day, <laughs> if you want to buy a house, like all of us, unless you're like a fucking kajillionaire, um, you kind of do whatever you like. The, the, the businesses, the, the governments, the municipalities get to do whatever they want, right? They're like, use the terms. And if you don't like them, like you can shop around a little bit, you know, but ultimately it's like, this is what you're going to get and you take it or leave it. And it's going to be very, very interesting to see uh, how that dynamic shifts over time. And you have lenders, you know, <laughs> uh, desperately trying to incentivize Bitcoiners to give that, you know, to, to, uh, 
to collateralize their loans with Bitcoin. Uh, I think that will be a very, a very fun thing to see, you know, you, 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 you put up the idea just now of, yeah, you know, you, you sort of, um, you sign a contract that puts up or uh, uses your Bitcoin as collateral in a lump sum. And then over time it's released to you. I can also imagine it going the other way where it's like, you know, uh, entities are like, yo, you get to live in this house for free. And then each month you, uh, you kind of like collateralize a little bit more of the house with your Bitcoin. So that if you don't pay us back within six months, uh, we get to keep your Bitcoin. Like, please, please take this. You know what I mean? (laughs) I'm I'm sure, I'm sure George knows this, but like uh, probably in like, maybe July or August of 2020, when the market was like really starting to take off in the housing market, at least that's when I started looking, there was deals literally like that. They're like, all right, no closing costs. You know, we pay for all of that. We'll pay for like, I heard people getting vacations. They were like, we'll pay for your vacation for $2,000, wherever you want to go. We'll throw in the plane tickets. We'll throw in the hotels. Like they were like trying to get like all these one ups to just get the house. They're like, we'll give you an all cash offer and this and that and this, like it was insane. And I'm sure George can relate to some of those stories. Oh man, they're desperate. That's for sure. I mean, it was so much worse 10 years ago before. I, we used to have people that, you know, these liar loans or these stated income, stated asset loans, like that you wouldn't believe the, the kind of stuff we would approve because all you really needed back then was literally just a credit score, a credit report, and you didn't need anything else. And you could qualify for a home basically for however much you wanted, however much you said that you made is there was, there was a moment in time where it was illegal as a loan originator to, to like ask for a, a, a statement to back up what a borrower was saying, because be like, you know, you risk discrimination. Like, why'd you ask this guy, not this guy? And uh, so people just come in and say whatever. And uh, we wonder how we got to it, you know, where we got that all that time ago. But I mean, that's, that's neither here nor there now. I mean, this is, it's a very different world. Um, One thing I want to make sure I say for anybody that's listening is, you know, if you qualify for a traditional loan today and you want to buy a house, you should just get a traditional loan. (laughs) That's probably going to be your best bet, right? Um, It's still really, really early. Now, if you can use your Bitcoin as a uh, an asset to to just to qualify for your loan, but without actually having to use it, which can sometimes make the difference in your buying power. Um, again, with you know, keep plugging house techie. I'm working. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm helping those those guys, and I really like I really like what we're building. Um, uh, and the product is is really important. But if you can use something like that to qualify, then that's a huge win if you don't have to spend it. So, so this conversation kind of goes beyond just like the Bitcoin backed mortgage loans. There's a, there's a lot of nuance and a lot of different opportunity, but the point is if you're a Bitcoiner and you have a, you know, W2 job and you can qualify for that house that you want to buy and get a Fannie Freddie loan, that's probably going to be your best bet today in today's market. Um, but this is very much a future oriented conversation of where things are headed and, and some of these products that are starting to emerge. George, I want to present a question that we received uh, from a viewer. Do you think Bitcoin-backed mortgages are risky based on how they are market marked to market? And when or how do you see the industry moving away from that for Bitcoin-backed loans? Yeah, so I do. I think that uh, it is risky to buy a home uh, with a collateralized Bitcoin product that is marked to market where you risk liquidation of your Bitcoin if there's price volatility. Like You don't want that stress in your life. Uh, and you know, living in your home should be, in my opinion, a, you know, your sanctuary, it should be your, your, it should be a peaceful experience. And so it's risky enough using Bitcoin backed, uh, lending in, in any scenario, but to, to use it, to buy a home to where now you're risking your bit, losing your Bitcoin and potentially your home. Uh, I do think it's, it's incredibly risky. So if you're, if you're going to do it, definitely, I would encourage you to look at into products that allow you to, to retain at least one of your keys and, um, 
have really, really low LTVs. In other words, you're, you're putting up a lot of Bitcoin to, uh, to justify the amount of fiat that you're getting. You're not, you're not like maxing out what they'll, what they'll allow. Um, the other thing I'll say is that it's definitely less risky, you know, in today's, at today's price than it was at, you know, all time highs. So when we're, when we're at this, this point in the market where there's this, this much of a drawdown, you know, probably a, a better time than previously to pursue something like this. Um, but uh, to the second part of the question of where do I think this is going? I mean, it really is kind of what we've been talking about. And I think as lenders begin to recognize that the risk is significantly reduced by being able to, uh, in the case of a default, being able to liquidate your Bitcoin, right? It's a very important distinction. Um, not in the case of price volatility, but in the case of you defaulting, you not living up to your terms, uh, a lender is going to eventually prefer that type of arrangement over what they have right now, which is like your, your promise that you're not going to get fired or lose your job, you know, tomorrow after, after you close on, on the loan. So I think that's going to be a really important like zero to one moment when, when there's like an aha moment for a lender who's got deep pools of liquidity that's willing to hold these loans on their balance sheets and, and, and uh, collect that yield that, you know, they're not getting from bonds and they're, they're maybe getting from mortgage-backed securities. But again, this is going to be a, this is going to be superior paper. And this is the other reason I think this is going to be superior paper. Bitcoiners are highly incentivized to keep their Bitcoin. So when we sign up for one of these loans, we are probably going to be the best borrowers ever. <laughs> I think, I think that we value our Bitcoin so much that we're going to make that payment. We're going to make that payment early. So that's not the case in, in the fiat world. And so I think that as as the this uh, asset class matures and as the as the market becomes familiar with how stable Bitcoin borrowers are and how motivated they are to to make sure that their payments are on time and avoid default, uh, this is going to be a plus paper. And and so um, that's going to take time to establish. But I, but I think that that's what we're gonna that's, that's what we're gonna see. I want to uh, start a company with you, George, called A Plus Paper. Mm. Or, like or a it. band or a band <laughs> either either one works yeah we'll be the new fanny freddy we just need a you know like a trillion dollars probably is all we need what i'm curious because we're starting to see like the banks make moves fidelity now offers 401k exposure to bitcoins you're going to slowly see these dominoes fall um where or what do you think is something that is not necessarily related to mortgages or the housing market in general. But if that starts to have Bitcoin sort of get involved in this, you're like the housing market mortgages are the next one up. Mm. Can you ask that a different way? Sorry, I'm not sure I'm, I'm tracking. No, no worries. So like I see Fidelity allowing people who hold 401ks with them to now access Bitcoin as a precursor to an inevitable Bitcoin ETF traded on the public markets. Okay. What would that sort of scenario through line with the um, Bitcoin mortgage, Bitcoin backed mortgages sort of being the Bitcoin ETF in this scenario? What would be that first trigger event in your mind or your opinion? Yeah, no, I definitely think they're very comparable. I think we'll probably get a Bitcoin ETF before we get a you know a real Bitcoin um, backed mortgage secondary market. So, and this is what I, when I'm describing, you know, a lender coming along and realizing, okay, there's something here. I'm now going to put up huge pools of capital. You think about how capital intensive it is to be a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, or even a jumbo lender, right? You need a lot of liquidity in order to, to fund these, these loans. And so um, 
So I think it'll probably go ETF and then it'll go Bitcoin backed mortgages, secondary market. And uh, what that'll do is it'll, it'll enable, uh, you know, lenders uh, who are consumer facing to create these loans and then sell them, sell the paper to the secondary market um, pools of liquidity. And so that's what we don't have yet. And I think that's going to be the, the pathway to something like this becoming um, you know, more mainstream and becoming adopted is these lenders are going to need to be able to sell the paper off of their books so they can turn around and relend their liquidity to, to borrowers. And that's really how the, the mortgage business works right now is um, as soon as I close, as soon as your, your originator closes on your loan, they're turning around and they're selling that paper to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And now they just, or, or whoever, whoever else is buying it. And now they just freed up that liquidity and they can go lend it again. But their the business model is they're making money every time that they do that. So that's what doesn't exist today for Bitcoin backed mortgage. So any of these companies that, that want to create a true Bitcoin backed mortgage um, are going to either need large pools of capital or they're going to need a, a secondary market to emerge. There's a lot to a lot to think about. I mean, I could probably talk to you for another hour asking you so many stupid questions about this. Um, I'm curious though, if there's a topic in this realm that we didn't touch on or we didn't get a chance to sort of discuss that maybe you wanted to, to break down a little bit. Um, you know, I think, I think the thing I really want to drive home is like when I'm asking these questions on Twitter and when we're exploring this, I recognize a couple of things. One, still really, really early. And this is going to be something that happens over a long period of time. And two, it's going to take, it's going to require us completely reimagining everything. So like I had some people in my comments asking, you know, answering my question as if I didn't understand how, you know, the current, you know, Bitcoin backed loan scenarios work. It's not really what I was getting at. The question is more rhetorical of like, you know, why, why do we think about Bitcoin backed mortgages or Bitcoin loans in general, the way that we do today? And the answer is because it's still early, right? And lenders don't fully understand it. But where we're headed is um, when the market matures, Bitcoiners, I think P mentioned this earlier, are going to be able to dictate our terms, right? There's going to be a, there's going to be a scarcity of people who um, have Bitcoin and lenders are going to be wanting to you know, participate with that part of the economy as much as they can. They're going to get creative and they're going to bend over backwards and they're going to have really low interest rates and really, um, uh, you know, simple ways of qualifying us that don't currently exist. So, um, so I just want to continue to encourage people to just like, just reimagine. So even when we say the word mortgage, you kind of get stuck in this, like, oh, I know what that is. It's 30 year fixed. And it's that whole process that I started out the conversation describing and I think we got to get away from that and just really, really simplify it. Um, and 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 I think I think Bitcoin allows us to do that because it's you know we've, we again we've never had anything like it before. And so that's what I'm excited about. I think I think the future is very bright in in, in these terms. And um, I don't think that Bitcoiners should be concerned or scared about a future where we're able to utilize our Bitcoin to uh, acquire the things that we want and do it in a way where we don't have to spend our Bitcoin, right? I think that's that's the idea. I think I think Sailor even talks about this. It's like this whole idea of like, you'll just, as price appreciates, you'll just be able to keep refinancing essentially. And so uh, that's what I'm after. I love, love it. it. George, where can everyone keep up to date with your ongoing thoughts and discussions around this and all of the, the shenanigans you post about on Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I'm on I'm on Twitter at G McHale, uh, G-M-E-K-H-A-I-L. That's probably the best place to find me. So hit me up. Let me know if you have questions. 
Uh, and of course, guys, do not forget, tickets for Bitcoin 2023 are sold out for fiat as of right now, but you can still buy those GA tickets using Bitcoin. I know a lot of you guys are cringing at the thought of that. Just literally go buy $250 worth of Bitcoin and then immediately go and buy your ticket there. Problem solved. That simple, guys. Because ticket prices go up on Friday. Indeed, they do. Um, you can still buy your whale passes with fiat, but those are going quickly as well. So Friday at midnight, prices go up and they will continue to go up, especially after we announce details for the next conference um, next month. Here's the hint, though. We're, we're talking like Olympus Mons, right? Service of Mars. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell people. Do you know, okay, George, I'm sorry, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let this slip. But we have found the lost city of Atlantis. Oh, we are oh, in okay. deep negotiations right now. All uh, I'm going to say. With the Mer people. <laughs> George, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Um, of course. Yeah, when we were uh, planning out the... the the conference i was so excited to learn this was an area of your expertise one of the many you're like a like many of us in bitcoin are uh you are a true swiss army knife and uh super excited to learn more about this myself and also to be able to talk about this on bitcoin magazine live so thanks for joining us awesome well i really enjoyed the conversation thanks for having me guys